The passage that we have read holds in my own heart, personally, a special place because it was one of the most significant portions that the Lord used prior to my own conversion. I have accounted that on other occasions, but just that time when, after I'd been at church in the evening, and I went to another meeting that was designed for young people, there was a lay preacher there who was preaching on the rich young ruler. And I remember feeling the certain comparisons and similarities that he was drawing from the record of this young man's life and how it felt like he was speaking to me, that there are certain things in his life that, were, that seemed to fit in my own context. I'm not, I wasn't rich, never have been rich, so it wasn't that. I'm not a ruler, never in that way, like he was, maybe. Though there's a certain authority with the pastor, but it wasn't then at that point. But I was young, and in some ways, I tried to sort of do like right by people. Let's just put it that way. Tried to do right by people. And there was things about my life that was different than many of my friends. I had a friend group of maybe 20 or 30 people between the ages of 18 and 25, maybe a little older, and there were many things they did that I didn't do. And so as I weighed my own life, even though I denied the existence of God, I had in the background this, this um, get-out-of-jail-free card, in which I thought, well, if push comes to shove and there is a God, then my works weighed in the balance. I think the good will outweigh the bad, and I should be fine. That was how I've, I felt about myself at 19 years of age. And so when this passage was preached that evening, I sensed that there's a lot of application there that applies to me, and I felt the power of it in my own soul. This young man that we've read of here in Luke 18, he came with the right question, he brought it to the right person, and what we find in reading this, and this, this is striking, and I'm not the first to make mention of it, is how our Lord Jesus seems to break a lot of evangelistic rules here. He, he doesn't mention God's love. He doesn't mention God's grace. He doesn't deal with certain themes that might be seen as winsome. He does bring the law, and many of us would impress upon you the importance of bringing God's law to bear upon the sinner so that he can see himself in light of, of God's Word. But there are many things he doesn't do. And we would say, this, this, this is strange. What kind of way is this to deal with a seeking soul? Especially when you think of the things that he, he does. We're not told of it here, but in Mark's record, and you have this account in Mark and Matthew as well as in Luke, we're told, Mark says, that he came running and kneeled to him. So he's not coming in a, a frame of animosity. He's not trying to cause trouble with Jesus Christ. In fact, Though he's a ruler, he shows tremendous humility, running to Christ with a matter of urgency, kneeling before him in a frame of respect and calling him good master. You would imagine that this is ripe pickings. This is easy fruit in terms of winning souls. Just get him to repeat this prayer after me and off you go. That's not what we find. That's not what we have read in the Word of God. Christ could see in him a form of pride, a form of pride, a manifestation of self-righteousness. And as he comes to Jesus with a very key question, he goes away dissatisfied, sorrowful, because he has not heard what he was hoping to hear. He was hoping for something else entirely. He's hoping that Christ would tell him, you're already there. 
You have nothing to worry about. You have eternal life. Or there's just one or two simple things you're missing. Something perhaps that's not too troublesome for someone like you. And you'll be fine if you do this or that. So our Lord Jesus shows us that while we shouldn't stand in the way of sinners, which is what the disciples did with the children in the previous verses, they stood in the way, they hindered the children coming. At the same time, we shouldn't be so concerned to to get people saved that we just throw everything out the window in terms of theology and proper practice. Our Lord Jesus deals with, with the man exactly as he needs to be dealt with. And that doesn't result in what we might hope for that he profess faith and trusts the Lord and follows after him. So, while the Lord would not have anyone stand in the way of men unnecessarily, nor would he have us simplify things to rob the truth in what it is that he is doing and who he is and so on. So, I've titled my message tonight, Loved But Lost. Loved But Lost. And there's a reason for that. I couldn't get away from that overarching truth. There are certainly other stronger themes in this passage, but when you read read Mark's gospel, it, it tells us in his account that Jesus, beholding him, loved them. He loved them. And that's what I want to leave with you. I want you, as we look at this passage, for you to consider that as Jesus deals with this man, and yes, he doesn't maybe deal with him, as many would say, this is the way to deal with someone like this. The entire time, he has a love for him. There's a love for this young man who goes away. Jesus, beholding him, loved him. So before I go any further, let me just say, as you deal with sinners, as you endeavor to present the gospel to the lost, you, you need to keep this in mind. You need to remember that the Lord Jesus, who could see the hearts of all and knew the intentions of all, He looks and He loves. Now, especially when you think of the context. Who, who, who tended to draw Christ's, Christ's affection and His mercy towards Him? It was those that were broken, those who were, who were humble, those who were crying out to have mercy upon Him. Here's someone who has, and we'll see it, He has self-righteousness. There's a certain self-righteousness in his heart. And yet that kind of person often was, was confronted by Christ very harshly. But here we're told he loved him. He loved him. I'm not going to turn to it, but you'll find it in Mark 10, verse 21. So let us think about this a little further with the Lord's help. Love but lost. First, it wasn't because he asked the wrong question. It wasn't because he asked the wrong question. Look at verse 18. A certain ruler asked him, saying, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? There are a couple of things here. First, he sought how to inherit eternal life. We might say that's a good thing. And I think, by and large, it should be seen positively. He longed to have eternal life. Now, what did he mean by eternal life? Or or how are we to understand eternal life? If eternal life is just a way of escaping the wrath of God, never being found in hell, and going to where the saints praise the living God, certainly that is something I think most people desire. 
But it's more than that. Eternal life is more than just escaping God's judgment. I hope we grasp that. Like to possess eternal life is not just, I've got my ticket, I'll not be in hell, all's good for me. Eternal life is, is something that governs how you live. In fact, it's, 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 it's the kind of goal of your existence, eternal life. When Jesus prayed in John 17, verse 3, his high priestly prayer, he said, This is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Eternal life, then, is, cannot be, let's put it this way, it cannot be disconnected from a true knowledge of God. And actually communicates that this is the goal of man. This is life eternal. This is the whole aim. That they might know thee, the only true God. Not in some way that you, you can say, like, I met God at some point. But that your whole goal is a knowledge of God. And a knowledge of God through Jesus Christ, as Jesus Christ reveals the true and living God. This is true life. When we are regenerated, when we are made to be new, that new life causes us to know God in a way that prior we never knew Him. Even if we read theology books and we memorized the catechism and we're able to give all the correct answers to certain theological questions, that is not the kind of knowledge the Lord Jesus is praying over here in John 17. To know God is something that changes who you are, governs how you live. So if you're a Christian, you need to be aware of that. If you say, I'm a Christian, you need to be aware of the fact to say that I have eternal life or I have life eternal is more than just saying I am a Christian. It is, it is something that governs your entire existence. That you're, <laughs> that you're calling, the calling upon your life is get up in the morning and pursue God. Get to know God. So how do you do that? Well, you know, you already know, I don't need to tell you. You read the Word of God, you, you read His Word. Like, how do you get to know anyone? You, you exchange conversation, you have, you have them tell you things, or you read about them. You say, I read a biography and I've learned about X, Y, or Z, whoever it might be. You learn about them through words. You learn about God through His written Word, and you learn more about Him as you commune with Him in prayer as well. In fact, if you look at Luke 18, you'll find that there are certain terms that are all pulled together and considered synonymous in this passage. Just for your observation, you should, you should note this, because he comes looking for eternal life. So this is the theme, this is the desire, but then the, the term that gets used in verse 24 is the kingdom of God. How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? That has no, makes no sense whatsoever unless it's tied into what it was that the young man was seeking for originally. Verse 26 as well. They that heard it said, Who then can be saved? So eternal life, the kingdom of God, saved, are in this sense synonymous. They bring you to the same place. You say, I've entered into the kingdom of God. You can't do that without being saved. You can't have that without having eternal life. You can't have one without the other. They're all the same. They're expressed in different ways. They reflect different truths, but you can't have one without the other. So if you have eternal life, you can say that you're saved. If you're in the kingdom of God truly, then you can say that you have eternal life. 
Now, there may be one issue with the question that the young man brought to our Lord. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Inheritance, of course, is the idea of receiving something. Sometimes it's something that you might say, well, I'm, I'm entitled to it or I'm expecting it. And so it would not be unusual or a stretch for a Jew to consider that eternal life or being part of the kingdom of God or being saved, whichever term you wish to use, is something he has a right to. Remember how Paul testified of his own life in Philippians 3. What did he do? He brought this series of credentials, didn't he? Circumcised the eighth day, Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee. He's presenting all these things that are are meant to reflect credentials that give him credibility before God. And the Jew's mind is, is like, surely then I, am, I have a seat at God's table in his kingdom. Well, he's wanting to have inheritance in relation to that as well. I mean, he has, he ticks no doubt many of the boxes. He's a ruler. He's a ruler. And he's a young ruler. Here's a very unusual character. Here's someone a little like Saul of Tarsus. Connected, powerful, respected. You don't become a ruler when you're young in Jewish community unless you are unusual and well-connected. This young man was such. Clearly knowledgeable. Did well in business, had tremendous wealth, made a lot of wise decisions. There's a lot of things to commend about him. And so he has this question. It's, it's like something nagging in his mind. He wants confirmation. He is, he is perhaps a little like Nicodemus, who also was the ruler of the Jews in John 3. There's a curiosity that, that, that cannot but rise in the, in the sincere mind. Oh, there were those who just dismissed Jesus immediately. They wanted nothing to do with him, and they wanted to create a certain false narrative about him. But there were people like Nicodemus, and clearly like this young man, who could see that, that there is something unusual here, and they wanted to have an interaction. They had their own curious thoughts that they wanted to bring to the Lord and have him clarify. Our Lord engaged with Nicodemus. He engages with this young man as well. So, the problem's not really about the question. The question's a fair question. And even if the matter of inheritance is, is perhaps a poor way of describing it, if you're to go that far to be critical of it, generally the question is admirable. I mean, imagine if someone came to you, if your friend at work or someone you, you know that you've been praying for for years, picked up the phone or said, can we get coffee, and sat you down, and after a few minutes of pleasantly said to you, how do I inherit eternal life? You'd be encouraged, wouldn't you? So he sought how to inherit eternal life. He follows up with claims of personal obedience. He follows up with claims of personal obedience. Verse 19, Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? None is good, save one that is God. 
Thou knowest the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor thy father and thy mother. And he said, all these have I kept from my youth up. Why do you call me good? It's an interesting one, isn't it? Good master. I mean, you'd think that the Lord would just give that a pass as well. Just, just let that one. That's encouraging. Here he's come kneeling, looking up into his eyes, saying, good master. But, but there, there's, there's, there's a matter of curiosity stemming from the Lord here, presented in this question. Why callest thou me good? Now, there are some blind fools who have read this and interpreted it as the Lord Jesus denying his deity. And so Jesus says, there's no one good but God. You've called me good. That's therefore wrongly, uh, you shouldn't have done that because I'm not God. That's how they read it. <laughs> it's like, What's wrong with these people? Seriously, are you that blind? That's not what is going on here. What the Lord is doing is testing the sincerity of the language that he's using. He's testing it. You've called me good. Now, there may be two motivations here that he's driving out. On the one hand, it may be a sense of, well, you've called me good. Let's, let's see your understanding of good. Don't you realize that only God is good? Because there may be that challenge then in the language in which he's calling me good. Well, if he understands that no one's good but God, then why, why would he call me good? Perhaps it's reflecting something about how he sees himself. I'm a good ruler, you're a good master, and I'm coming, and there's that sense. And so he's challenging it from that perspective. But what is more likely the case is that he's challenging his, his understanding in terms of, do you really know who I am? Let's clear this up. You've called me good master. No one's good but God. So let me challenge you then. Don't you realize that no one's good but God? He's calling him out to see whether he will actually affirm that, yes, I know that only God is good. That's why I'm calling you good. He understands that the Lord Jesus himself is God. It is a certain challenge to him. Either that he sees the challenge of the assumption of goodness in himself as well as in Christ, or questioning the confession. Do you really know what you're saying? And perhaps kind of a bedrock of it, are you willing to actually declare this observation to the world that I am good, or similarly, I am God? Because the Lord did that, didn't he? I mean, he, he, saw, he, he pulled together two truths that could only be true about about God. And you remember that time when the man was left, left down, the, the, the four friends let, brought his friend down before the Lord Jesus in the home, tore up the roof and presented him, and they challenged him because they, he said, thy sins be forgiven thee. And they said, no one can forgive sins but God only. And he said, what does it matter whether I say, arise, take up thy bed and walk, or your sins be forgiven thee? You need to know that I have power on earth to forgive sins. He, he has that because he is God. So it doesn't really matter how you frame it. It's the, the truth is still the same. This is God you're dealing with. God in flesh. So, our Lord then progresses to make mention of the commandments. None is good, save one that is God. That's something for him to chew over. And then, he mentions the commandments, or some of the commandments. In fact, it's just the first table of the law or rather the second table of the law, excuse me, 
We talk about the commandments, we talk about the Ten Commandments, no doubt familiar with everyone here, at least you have some idea. So the first ones, the first four relate to our relationship to God, and then the last, remaining six, relate to our relationship to man. So it's loving God, loving our neighbor. And our Lord here puts focus upon the second table, the love or the demands of the law towards our neighbor. Now that's key, and we'll see that in just a moment. And his response in verse 21 is, all these have I kept from my youth up. Now he's really young. <laughs> and this is part of youth, isn't it? Because the young, even when they're still young, feel like there's so many years and they're so much older than they really are. It seems like it feels a lot longer to them. But he's able to say this. Now, now is, is he being un- insincere? Now, how do you read this? All these have I kept from my youth up. I, th- I, I read this as, as sincere, that this, this, is, this is his evaluation. Master, I have endeavored to, I, I know that's what God's Word says, and I have endeavored to live that way. Now, there are all sorts of questions that will flood, flood into your mind, certainly come into my mind. I'm thinking, well, were you not there at the Sermon on the Mount? <laughs> because you might, have, you might be a little more hesitant to say, all these have I kept from my youth up, when you hear the fact that lust isn't just the fact that you look, or, or rather adultery is not just being caught in the act of adultery, but it's the lust of the heart is the breaking of the seventh commandment. And the same for, for murder. You don't have to actually end someone's life, but hatred in the heart is a form of murder. So you go through the Sermon on the Mount and the Lord dealing with the spirituality of the law, how deep it goes. It's not just through external forms. It actually go, penetrates to the desires and intentions and thoughts of the person. If he knew that, I don't think he would have said this. But based on his current knowledge, he could say, this is what I've endeavored to do. Again, this, this is what Paul said the same thing, didn't he? The Apostle Paul, before his conversion on the road to Damascus, earnestly was convinced that he maintained the law. In fact, when you read Matthew's account, in Matthew 19... Verse 20, it records, All these things have I kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? What lack I yet? It's like in all his sincerity, he has tried so hard, and there's this emptiness that still was, is, is within his soul. It's hard sometimes to understand that, but Clearly we can see this working itself out in the world in which people who attain to their dreams still feel an emptiness when there's no God at the heart of their life. You're not talking about ones and twos feeling that emptiness. You're talking about this is commonly, commonly the experience of people who have actually achieved all that their hearts could ever have wished for and more and still there is a void. This young man, same thing. I have worked so hard. I have sought to be diligent. I have sought to be upholding of everything that I have been asked or commanded or taught to do. I have studied the law. I have given myself to live out the law. I have, I have sought, 
from my youth. In other words, since, you know, you might, might, I don't know exactly what he's referring to. It may be referring to his bar mitzvah, the time he, he becomes a man. He's really saying, like, from the time that I became a man, I have given myself. I have maintained my vows. I have sought to live this out. What lack I yet? I, I think there's a certain form of integrity about him. Yes, there's ignorance. He doesn't understand. There's a self-righteousness because he can't see how far short he comes. But there is a certain... It's, it's, it's funny. I mean, you know people like that, don't you? You know people who are really... There's a certain sincerity even though there's a blindness. He was a decent neighbor. You know what his problem was? Though he had an emptiness, a sense of lacking, fulfillment, something's missing, though he had that, you know what he didn't have? The experience of conviction of sin. He had never experienced conviction of sin. Again, you see a lot of parallels with Paul, don't you? He thought he was maintaining the law every step of the way until, until one day that tenth commandment seemed to be illuminated in a way he had never seen before. Thou shalt not covet. And all of a sudden, Paul's whole hope, the house of cards he had erected of his righteousness seemed to be falling apart right before his very eyes. Because he knew there was this coveting spirit, this lustful spirit, this desire to have what God had kept from him. However it was manifested, that was the commandment that smote his heart. So that's his problem. He had never felt what it is like to feel worthy of hell. Is that needed, preacher? I, I, I believe so. I believe before you can go to heaven, I'm talking about conscious adults, people who are able to think through things, before you can obtain heaven through Christ, there comes to you in some fashion and form, to some degree and measure, though not equally the same, there's some apprehension of your worthiness of hell. So that if I talk to any professing believer who truly knows Christ, do you know by your own works, by your own actions, you deserve hell? Without hesitation, they would say, yes, I know it. They don't deny it. They will never deny it. They know it. They know it in their heart of hearts. I have broken God's law. God is a just judge. He must punish. I am worthy of hell. I know it. I haven't committed every conceivable sin that everyone can possibly commit to every conceivable degree, but I have done enough. I know I am worthy of hell. I know that. There is no one going to heaven or is in 
heaven by the merit of Christ, who would deny that? So should there be anyone here tonight who thinks that you're going to heaven, but you've never actually considered, I am worthy of hell, give a real deep rethink about what it is you're trusting in terms of your salvation. No man has the hands to hold on to his own righteousness and the righteousness of Christ at the same time. It's one or the other. And that's what this man was failing to understand. He's trying to grasp at the means of eternal life. That is Christ. That is Christ in His finished work. That is Christ in the shedding of His blood. That is Christ in His perfect righteousness. All of that. He's trying to seize upon how you get eternal life. It's Christ in the hand by faith alone, while at the same time maintaining a certain sense of valuing his own merit, his own work, his own life, his own credibility. And no man's hands are big enough for both. You can't hold on to both. You can only have Christ in the hand when you've let go entirely of your own righteousness. When the title is given, what we sang, The Lord Our Righteousness, Jehovah said, can you? The Lord Our Righteousness. It is with the intention that only the Lord is your righteousness. He doesn't desire a competitor. He doesn't need a helping hand. When it comes to giving you righteousness before God, God has done all that is needed in Jesus Christ. And all your hands need to hold on to is Christ. Cast aside everything you think is good about how you've lived up to this point. I've kept the second table of the law. I've loved my neighbor as I ought to love him. I've been good and kind and caring and considerate and generous. I've done all these things. What lack have I yet Oh, there was a lack. So, it wasn't because he asked the wrong question. He wasn't loved and lost because he asked the wrong question. Secondly, it wasn't because he received the wrong answer either. It wasn't because he received the wrong answer. He has no excuse here. He can't say, I got the wrong answer. That's why I left sorrowful. No. First, there are things that need dealt with. In the answer that he has given, he is told that there are things that need to be dealt with. Verse 22, When Jesus heard these things, he said unto him, Yet lackest thou one thing, sell all that thou hast, and distribute unto the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. These are the things that need to be dealt with. In his life. Now, this seems harsh, right? Many people came to Jesus and he never told them this. He never told them, sell everything. And of course, if you say this to someone who has nothing, it's like, okay, <laughs> no problem. I don't have anything to sell. It's not a problem. The challenge for this young man is he had great riches. 
He had a large portfolio. And he could quit right now and he would be fine for the rest of his life. And so the Lord is calling him to give these things up. And there's a reason for that. Why? why? What, what's, what's he getting at? Well, again, if you look at verse 20, when Christ gives the commandments, they're all the second table. What is he lacking? He is lacking a comprehension, at the very least, of the extent of the first table and how far short he was falling in the very first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. No other gods. No other gods. The Lord has a way when He draws a man to Himself of putting His finger on the, the last thing He wants to give up. He doesn't come to you and say, give up the thing that you don't care about. He doesn't do that. Who, who cares? There's no pain in that. There's no sense of loyalty required there. The Lord knows how to put His finger on the very thing you're most afraid to lose. I referred to my own testimony. Later that night, after having hear, heard this message preached on, my challenge was, if I do this, I'm going to lose all those friends I had referred to I'm going to lose them all. I'm going to lose my girlfriend. It's gone. I'm weighing that up. In other words, before I cried out, God save me, I was in this battle. A sense of negotiation in which God would not relent on making it clear to me, you need to be prepared to give up. If they walk away, if they're never your friends again, if you lose her as a girlfriend, if that happens, then that's what is being asked of you. He knows how to put his finger on the very last thing we want to give up. So this, this, this man had sat through thousands of synagogue services. And I've been up to Jerusalem every single year since he was 13 years of age. He was acquainted with everything that he needed to know. So he thought every time a rabbi talked, he would make a little change in his life perhaps, improve on his his love for his neighbor, try to do all the things that's required externally of him. But never had anyone put their finger on the real love of his life until now. So I want you to, I want you to be aware of that. This passage teaches very clearly that Jesus Christ will not negotiate in the sense that he will not compromise in the negotiation of salvation. When a man comes seeking for eternal life and there's something in his life, something in his heart that is considered like an idol, 
like there's a love and affection attached to it more than anything else, whether it be stuff or person or whatever it might be, you, you, can't, you can't obtain salvation until you let go of that thing. So it needs to be dealt with. And there are things that need to be dealt with in your life too. I was thinking of, of Galatians 5 and the things that we're warned of there in Galatians 5 concerning the, the lusts that we have. Just turn there for a moment. Galatians 5. Galatians 5, verse 19. The works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before... As I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, are there people in heaven who have done these things, even after their conversion? Yes. Yes. There's not a single person in heaven who has not, in some fashion, done something on this list after their conversion. And yet it says you can't inherit the kingdom of God. You cannot be found among the people of God if you do such things. So how do we understand this? Well, without getting into any depth, let me just make my point here tonight. You can't hold on to any of those things and obtain Christ at the same time. If there is in your mind, I'm going to hold on to my envyings. I'm going to hold on to my lusts and whatever is described there in that, my, my drunkenness. And so I'm going to hold on to it and try to take Christ at the same time. No, it's not happening. Because that is open, willful hypocrisy. You're taking Christ who died for your sins while holding on to the very things that put him on the cross. It's not going to happen. Now, after the fact, you, you will fall into them in various ways. You'll find yourself sinning and having to come to the cross and confess your sins and plead for the blood of Christ to wash them away. You'll find yourself doing that every day of your life. For this man, it was idolatry. We mentioned that. Idolatry. Idolatry was in that list. It was idolatry. Idolatry of his riches. He loved his riches Yet lackest thou one thing, back in Luke 18, sell all that thou hast and distribute unto the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. Give it all up. Deal with that false love. So, that's the, one of the answers he gets, the things that need to be dealt with. The Lord tells us that. But there's also something that must be done. Not dealing with things, not just dealing with things and putting things, let's say, out of your life. There's also something that must be done. And come follow me, end of verse 22. Come follow me. Often when you hear this passage preached, there is not much emphasis, if any, placed upon this, these three words. 
Come, follow me. Come, follow me. And yet they're crucial. They're crucial. Because without them, this is all negative. It's like if you want to have salvation, you have to just put stuff away. Just, just get rid of the bad stuff. No, that's not salvation. That just makes way for what salvation really is all about. What is salvation really all about? Following Christ. Being a disciple of Christ. This is the very language that Jesus spoke to. Peter and Andrew, James and John, Philip, Levi, they all heard these words. Follow me. Come, follow me. And they forsook their nets. And they got up from their seat of custom. And they walked away and they followed Jesus Christ. No hesitation, no bargaining. They followed him. <laughs> they just got up and followed him. Now, I don't know to what degree they may have been as wealthy as this man. They certainly weren't poor. These men were not, none of them were poor. They had a certain amount of means it's from what we can glean from the gospel accounts. And, and Levi, no doubt, had, had plenty. At least they'd been comfortable. But they walk away. And this, this, this is really the heart of it. It's like, get rid of the, the garbage. Get rid of the, the idolatry. Get rid of the falsehood. Get rid of the bad. So that you can make way for the true and the right. And that which actually satisfies following Christ. Oh, how many miserable Christians there are. Because on the one hand, they're trying to follow Jesus Christ. And on the other, they're trying to follow some other false god. And you can't do it. It doesn't bring you any joy. You know it. You know it. When you're trying to compromise in the Christian life, you know it. Because the Lord robs you of his joy. He does. He does. <laughs> he takes away all the very blessings of being saved. I mean, isn't that it? Isn't that, isn't that the, the kind of uniform, universal expression of salvation? It brings joy. It brings singing. It brings gladness. And then we fall away. We backslide. We allow things to come into our life. We start valuing other things. There starts to be this contention between our loyalty, loyalty to Christ and our loyalty to whatever this other thing is. And the Lord always causes the joy to just win and disappear. Oh, you can sing. And maybe you've got a great voice and you still sound really sweet when you sing. But there's an emptiness. It's hollow. It's all hollow. Because you're backslidden. The Lord is not just asking this man to get rid of his riches because he wants to see him suffer. He's asking him to get rid of them because without getting rid of them, he can never truly enjoy Christ. That's the position that he is in. Was this a challenge? Absolutely. But oh, that he had taken just one second and thought of what he's actually asking for. He's asking for eternal life. Clearly he knows that nothing in his wealth can actually give him a guarantee that he has it. Now, I say that carefully because the Jews had a habit of equating wealth and riches with divine favor. And if you're rich and you're wealthy, God has blessed you because you're a good boy. Well done to you. And so there was a sense in which I've, I've, maybe, I've maybe got good credits before God. I'm doing well here because I'm, I'm, look how wealthy I am. You see how, how, how counter Jesus is? You see how he flips everything on its head? <laughs> see, they're, they're taught from their youth. Wealth is a sign of, 
of God's favor, Jesus comes and says, sell it all. Get rid of it and follow me. Christ will not begin a relationship with a sinner when there is a competitor in view. It's like getting married. Some young people here get married very soon. They're not going to stand up there and exchange vows when they have evidence that there's, there's, a, there's another love in the heart, another loyalty in their souls. They're not going to do that. Jesus says, come, follow me. How sad it is, the things that men will exchange for salvation. He's going to exchange all his riches for peace with God. Thirdly, it was because he made the wrong assessment. He was loved but lost because he made the wrong assessment. First, we might say he thought he could have salvation on his own terms. Verse 23, when he heard this, he was very sorrowful, for he was very rich. He thought he could, whatever he would hear from Christ, he thought he could get. The last thing he was expecting was that the Lord would say, sell everything. Sell everything. So whatever he had in his mind, he thought, I can can have it in terms that are agreeable to me. I can have it on terms that are agreeable to me. No. (laughs) That's not how it works. You have salvation on God's terms or you don't have it at all. So if you're here tonight without salvation, without forgiveness of sins, without a knowledge that you are the Lord's, be clear about this. You don't get it. You will not have heaven on your own terms. So he goes away sorrowful, very sorrowful. He is greatly grieved at this. I mean, this this speaks to the integrity of him again. There's a sincerity here. This wasn't a light matter. This wasn't him trying to catch Jesus in his words. This is someone who is real and sincere, and yet he can't seem to get that idol displaced so that Christ can have his proper place. He can't do it. He thought he could have salvation on on his own terms. He thought he could have salvation by his own effort. Verse 24, I think this comes clear here. Verse 24, And when Jesus saw that he was very sorrowful, he said, How hardly, how difficult, or with great difficulty, shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. There's a certain self-sufficiency in him. Saw that already. And what our Lord presents in these remaining verses really clear up the false idea he had that he could have salvation by something that he could do. What do I do? What do you want me to do to inherit eternal life? So the first thing to see here is that humanly speaking, riches present a genuine hindrance. Humanly speaking, riches present a genuine hindrance. That's what verse 24 and 25 show us. How difficult shall they that have riches, how hard it is with such difficulty it is, 
that they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. That verse 25, all sorts of ideas about the needle's eye being a gate in Jerusalem or a gate in the city, let's say, uh, through which at night when the gates are shut, men would bring their camel if they needed to get in late. And so they'd have to, to get the camel in, they'd have to unburden the camel and sort of it was really difficult to get them in there. <laughs> I, I don't think that's the point, because really the point of this is to show dif- the, the difficulty of this, the, the, in the sense of the impossibility of it, because that's how the disciples interpret it. How can this be done? So it's probably a statement that was common there, certainly it would have made sense. The biggest camel that commonly was found in that part of the world, the, the biggest animal was a camel, and, and the smallest opening that you could sort of imagine in your mind is that the eye of a needle, and you think, how do you cram that in? How do you do that? It can't be done. So that's the point. It's easier to do that than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. The bottom line is, humanly speaking, riches present a genuine hindrance. Now, I don't have time to elaborate on that, but that should scare us. I've made emphasis on this because this comes up in the Gospels a lot. Wealth is a problem. It is a problem spiritually. It affects us spiritually, and it hinders us spiritually. Don't pass over the words and imagine that they're nothing. People are in hell. People are going to hell because riches are a real hindrance. And they will not give them up. They will not put them in their proper place. So humanly speaking, riches present a genuine hindrance. Theologically speaking, salvation is a genuine miracle. Theologically speaking, salvation is a genuine miracle. Verse 26, they that heard it said, who then can be saved? It's a sense of, like, they hear what he's saying. What? That's a, this, you're, you're basically saying that salvation is impossible. And he said, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. How do you get a man with all this wealth? All this wealth to give it up and follow Jesus. You can't. You can't do it. You cannot do it. Only one can do it. God. God. And men have done this. Men have done it. We have it in the Bible. You have other expressions of it in church history. You have people like C.T. Studd who had tremendous wealth. You have others who are known for having great wealth, tremendous Wealth and God, God so worked in them so that they had to give it all up and follow Jesus Christ. And the only thing that brings a man to do it is a work of God. People don't do this by nature. They don't do it because it brings them some personal satisfaction in their carnal ways. No, it, causes, it, it needs God to do a work in them. So you, you look at that wealthy, stable person that you know that's not a Christian. You say, how can they be saved? It's going to take a genuine miracle. And also, eternally speaking, obedience is a genuine investment. Humanly speaking, riches present a genuine hindrance. Theologically speaking, salvation is a genuine miracle. Eternally speaking, obedience is a genuine investment. Verse 28, Then Peter said, Lo, we have left all and followed thee. 
And the Lord doesn't correct them, does he? It's true. Peter left everything. He said it all say. Immediately. Left his nets. Followed Jesus. And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that hath left house, or parents, or brethren, or wife, or children, for the kingdom of God's sake, who shall not receive manifold more in this present time, and in the world to come, life everlasting. Obedience is a genuine investment. Hearing the call of Jesus Christ, Come, follow me. Come, follow me. Give up all your wealth. Give up all your riches. Give up all your position. Give it all up and follow me. It is a genuine investment. And all the world doesn't see it, can't understand it, can't begin to comprehend it. And sometimes I wonder about the church. I wonder, beloved, do we believe it? Do we actually believe in the investment in the eternal? That this is true. You can give it up. If the Lord comes and puts his finger on the most precious thing in your life and says, walk away from it. Be prepared to sacrifice it. That you're, you, you see that this is an investment. This obedience is an investment. It's hard. It's painful. I feel like my heart's been torn from my chest. But Jesus is worth it. When he says, come, follow me, already there is in that very call a sense of love. That's what we're saying, isn't it? Jesus beholding him loved him. Any man who hears from Jesus these words, come, follow me, those are words of love. God, who came to earth for the sake of sinners and their sin and their plight, comes and says, follow me. Follow God. Walk with me. Live life with me. What motivates me? Have that motivate you. What my objectives are, have those as your objectives. Don't settle for something second rate. Don't compromise and gamble away your soul. Come, follow me. Oh, if, only, if only that young man could see that at that very moment, where was Jesus heading? He's going to Jerusalem. If he could just see, actually see what Jesus Christ is doing. He's on his way to Jerusalem to lay down his life as the just one for the unjust ones. He is going there to bear the sins of many. He is going there to be the savior of the world. He is going there to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. He is going there to bring peace with God through him. And why, why is it that in this little, little momentary existence of our lives, we think something is of greater value than life with God through Jesus Christ. Oh, Christian, we don't help ourselves, do we? In, in, in the way we present ourselves to the world, because we really do tend to present ourselves as trying to have the best of both worlds, don't we? There's not a lot of sacrifice at times in the Christian church. I don't feel the pain. <laughs> the pain. Have you ever, you ever felt pain? Like God asking you to do something, you feel the pain of it in your soul? Parting with something, going to do something, going to ask forgiveness from someone that you, you really don't want to go and say that to? Or, or to give a certain lump 
sum of money or whatever, and you, that's like, but I just feel like God is putting this on my heart, asking you to leave, to go somewhere, to give up a relationship, whatever it might be. Have you felt the pain of that? Have you obeyed? Come follow me. Have you? I'll tell you, there's such peace on the other side. Such peace. Yes. I'll tell you, there's real freedom in prayer. Real freedom in prayer. Because that's the whole point of it. It's getting this garbage out of your life so that you have the knowledge of God. Real fellowship and communion with your God. Oh, friends, if you're not saved, young people and children, if you're not in Christ, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Don't wait till he walks away. Having heard tonight the words, come, follow me, Don't ignore them. Don't neglect them. Say, that will be the motto of my life. If it was good enough for Peter and Andrew and James and John and Philip and Levi and everyone who through all the history since then has actually said goodbye with every competitor, I'm going to live for Christ. It's good enough for them. It's good enough for you. Don't waste your life half-hearted, playing games, and wondering at the end why, why you're so miserable. Let's bow together in prayer. Their heads are bowed before the Lord. This is a little moment here before we get up and people start talking to us. And here's where we, we can do business with God. If you're backslidden because you have allowed the world or something else to creep in and seize upon your affections, if God has dealt with you, and I trust He has, respond. It's time to seek the Lord. It's time to put away those sins and compromises and stop playing games. And if you're not saved and you need help finding your way to the cross, finding your way to obtaining peace with God, be sure to let us know. I'll be glad to talk with you. Lord, bless thy word. Oh, please, let there be no person that's like this rich young ruler. May it please thee, God, to bring all safely into the fold, willing to give up all and follow Jesus, no matter what. So save, we pray, and maintain in those who are thy people a desire to keep on following the Master. Hear our prayers and bless our fellowship. Empower us to serve Thee this week. Give us the Holy Ghost for every endeavor. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all the blood-bought people of God now and evermore. Amen. Thank you.